This is the Software and Technology Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. The more diversity of thought of the people working at tech companies, the better. The blockchain idea was around 91, the same idea of in the digital world, we need verifiable documents. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the MarketScale Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the podcast. As you're listening along, make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to all of our different podcast channels to make sure you're getting a full catalog of previous MarketScale thought leadership conversations, as well as notifications when we drop new ones. And if you'd like that full catalog of podcast network shows you can go to our podcast network tab on our website marketscale.com industries for plenty of b2b specific industry vertical conversations so on today's episode of the podcast we're going to be exploring the evolution of end user software training more specifically as remote education tools continue to get more robust and more necessary under covid How have they intersected with authentic online communities and how can employers use those communities to their advantage for employees continued education? On top of that, how has the technology itself had to adapt under COVID and where have we found success? Here to give some perspective on these various topics is Cindy Lynch, training program manager for Stenograph. Cindy, great to have you on. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing just great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you on today and uh, breaking down this very timely topic of the evolution of training programs under COVID. Uh, So before we get any deeper, let's just get a quick elevator pitch on Stenograph again so our audience uh, who may not be familiar understands uh, the sort of niche industry that y'all work in. I think this will be important as we continue to break down the ways that y'all have adapted your training. Uh, So yeah, go ahead and just let our audience know exactly what Stenograph does, uh, where you fit into your industry, and uh, any other context you find important about your company. Uh, Stenograph is the leading provider of uh, machine shorthand, uh, uh, shorthand machines. We create um, uh, the software and the uh, uh, hardware technology to enable court reporters, captioners, uh, uh, cart providers, uh, scopists, instructors, students, anyone involved in uh, uh, capturing speech to text. Uh, doing it through the human being and the human brain as opposed to uh, uh, relying on just artificial intelligence to try to capture the spoken word. Uh, We have a variety of different methods. Uh, In addition to uh, shorthand machines, we're also uh, enabling uh, uh, voice-to-text through uh, a voice product, and uh, we're currently exploring uh, uh, different avenues, uh, uh, also using digital transcription. All right, perfect. Thanks for that context. So, Cindy... Let's get a little more information on you as a professional. Uh, You've been a trainer now for 30 plus years, so you have a lot of experience in the field and have seen the field change over the span of these three decades. Can you describe some of the ways that you've seen the supporting technology of um, these training programs evolve in that time span and walk us through some of the ways that that has impacted uh, the trainings that you've done in the last 30 years? 
Wow. Well, uh, first of all, I'm a second generation trainer. My mom was a trainer before me. Uh, I actually started uh, my career, uh, I guess you could count way back to 1974 uh, when mom first started working for Stenograph. And uh, then she went over to one of our rival companies to get involved in uh, uh, software training training in the first CAT systems, the first uh, computer-aided transcription uh, systems. And uh, I was always her guinea pig. So I learned how to train from her. And that was back in the day of, uh, um, you know, a CAT system was a full room-sized computer. They were mainframes. And so I have done everything, uh, uh, pretty much every CAT system from uh, those mainframes all the way through uh, um, dedicated operating systems to DOS, to Windows, to where we are today. So I've seen uh, the hardware change, I've seen the operating systems change, I've seen uh, uh, the people change tremendously over time. And uh, the methods of training have uh, stayed the same remarkably for a number of years. When we first started training, uh, way back even in mom's day, uh, what they would do is they would send a human being, uh, a trainer, out to the customer who would then learn as much as they possibly could. They'd learn it once. Uh, it would, back in those days, uh, that would cover most of what the software could actually do. And they spent a lot of time uh, uh, just waiting for downtime. <laughs> to uh, uh, take place because uh, back then uh, computers couldn't do a whole heck of a lot without breaking. Uh, but uh, as uh, the quality of hardware and software uh, improved over years, things got shorter and shorter. Uh, basically, people didn't want to spend a whole week learning how to use their software as they did back in the mainframe days. Uh, by the time I got involved and was actually uh, regularly training, we were down to two to three days that uh, people would come and spend with me to learn exactly how their software worked. And then that cut down to a day and a half. And then we decided, no, we can't just uh, uh, spend uh, an entire day with a fellow human being. We'll just do it for, uh, uh, you know, in large groups where we'll just attend classes once in a while. And uh, so they would, uh, but everything was in person. Um, that obviously changed, uh, oh, about uh, 12 to 15 years ago when uh, people began to start seeking uh, uh solutions that wouldn't take up quite as much of their time. It wasn't just a matter of how much time do I spend training, it was a matter of uh, how much can I learn in the least amount of time and only when it's convenient. So they looked into video and they looked into webinars and we looked into remote uh, online trainings. Uh, so the technology has changed dramatically over over time and the content of the training has changed. Uh, it used to be just get someone up and running and then they'll figure out on their own exactly where they need to go from there based on their individual jobs and they'll ask questions and we'll get that information to them either in written materials or in videos or whatever. However, this industry is very particular. Uh, you, you need to know what you need to know versus what your competitor or uh, 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 the court reporter next to you might actually need to know because everyone does things just a little bit differently and also everybody learns just a little bit differently. So customizing to the individual something that used to be very, very simple became harder and harder as we tried to make it uh, time efficient and more cost efficient. So, uh, uh, you know, 
that's basically what it has been. We stayed the same of just trying to get people up and running and then address various advanced training needs on a, uh, you know, a case by case spaces or in a large seminar or something like that, but uh, it was never all that particularly efficient. Uh, the one thing that it was efficient at was at uh, permitting people to earn uh, continuing education credit for uh, uh, the National Court Reporters Association, uh, enable them to uh, uh, maintain their educational requirements because they would spend, you know, a day with us or a day and a half with us or four hours with us or whatever, and we would track that time and they would uh, uh, spend that time and one thing that I found uh, the uh, consistent feedback on that was that uh, they were there to put the time in to get their credit. They weren't necessarily looking to learn anything and they would likely only pick up maybe one thing that they could actually use and they'd get very excited about that one thing. Um, but that used to make me crazy too, because they were spending four hours with me or a day with me or a day and a half with me, just depending on, you know, where in the process we're talking about. And they would only get one thing. And how inefficient is that? Yeah, you might be earning your points, but was it really worth the amount of money you spent or the amount of time that you spent to learn that one thing? How much of a difference, how much of a return on your investment do you get from that? So it, it was definitely something that was ripe uh, uh, to change. And so I'm really glad that we've come up with this new method so that we uh, have been able to fix a lot of these problems. Go ahead and talk to us a little bit more about the way that software and technology as part of the training has, um, I guess, changed in its scope. Because I imagine... Uh, in the early days of training, um, you know, the technology was obviously more supportive and it wasn't really used as the platform or the core basis to deliver some of these uh, end user trainings. But now uh, they, you know, the software itself is more robust and there can be more direction and I think more proactive strategy around how to actually use these platforms to the benefit of the training program. So can you break down a little bit uh, how those approaches to even integrating software into the trainings has changed in okay, your 30 so years? What I've seen over the years, we uh, evolved from just doing in-person trainings and being very customized and very being very specialized to what a you what each individual's unique needs were to using more cookie cutter kinds of solutions uh, where you would simply have a uh, a, a computer-based training that would mimic the software. One of the things that I created back in the very early, uh, well, actually it was late 1990s, in 1997, we came out with uh, uh, a CBT, a computer-based training, which was a simulation of what the software actually did. And it would uh, take the person through um, uh, uh, how to do each of the main functions. And so it would get you to a certain point. Uh, that worked for a while until uh, the uh, software solutions changed so that that kind of mimicry was no longer easily uh, doable. Uh, it would have been uh, uh, incredibly expensive to try to program it when you didn't have, uh, uh, I think the tool we used at the time was AuthorWare and then AuthorWare disappeared. Uh, and then uh, we chose to go with the route that everybody else was going with, which was video. And so we did lots of uh, 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 
fairly lengthy video presentations that matched the needs of the lesson as opposed to the needs of the individual. And I found that it works to some extent because everybody does need to learn those things. And of course, in video, you can pause it and then you can uh, uh, continue learning as you need to. But one of the things that I've learned is that if you're going to be uh, uh, doing DIY types of training of any kind, you can't just do it for hours and hours and hours. You have to take it in very small chunks. When you try to do it for uh, lengthy amounts of times, your brain just simply doesn't retain the information, even if you are reinforcing it with practice. So it helps to uh, uh, get it in smaller and smaller chunks, uh, which is something that I found uh, in a lot of uh, uh, different uh, uh, industries and how they deliver training. Um, one of the uh, uh, resources that I've used for a number of years. It used to be lynda.com and now it's LinkedIn Learning. And a lot of the good courses there you'll always find are each lesson is really no more than six to ten minutes so that you can really focus on a particular task that you're trying to master and then practice it right away. So that's something that we've tried to do in terms of uh, our own uh, uh, video learning. But again, it's still a bit tricky when you're just using video. And the uh, question too is, if I'm trying to le uh, learn an entire product, uh, how much is someone willing to sit down and actually uh, uh, learn when they have to put out a transcript right away? So we found that blended methods usually make a huge difference. Uh, if you start off with the videos, getting enough to, you know, in you know bits and pieces, to get the basics down and to understand uh, uh, what you're supposed to be doing and how to get from point A to uh, point B, that's extremely helpful. So it's a good starter. Uh, we also provide documentation so that someone can actually physically look at something and see, oh, I'm supposed to be learning this, 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 and this in order to be able to do my job and having the documentation to go with it so that someone who doesn't necessarily learn best by watching but by doing uh, or by uh, reading uh, uh, will find that more easy. And then we would provide interactive practice. Uh, and uh, uh, honestly, I've never found a really great automation tool for interactive practice. Um, and I don't find the testing to be all that uh, uh, helpful. It doesn't help to just say, oh, what's the key that allows you to copy and paste? Uh, or what is the key that allows you to do this particular function? Um, that's not what they need to memorize and memorize memorization and just answering test questions correctly doesn't help. What happens is actually doing the thing that you need to do. So we literally uh, just made practice files out of our own uh, uh, software. Uh, uh, so uh, people had to actually practice the specific uh, uh, functions of the software within the software, but just in a safe setting. And uh, uh, with a way we had uh, created a, a means where you could simply overwrite the training uh, with a single, you know, uh, click of a button so that you could, uh, uh, you know, reset it to what it originally had been and you could screw it up as many times as you needed to to uh, uh, be able to practice it as much as possible. But uh, so we did find that that blended approach uh, has been the most effective way. Uh, and then uh, the, the most recent trend, uh, well, it's not really that recent, it's been going on for a dozen years or so, but it's be becoming more and more used, is having remote 
live training where someone can guide you through a process for an hour at a time or maybe up to two hours at a time so that you can cover a series of topics and uh, uh, get those questions answered. But again, having it be a more one-on-one, a more individual thing as opposed to just a webinar necessarily. Uh, Webinars can be great, but again, without interaction, it makes it very difficult for people to learn. I found that most people, unless there is more than just a presentation, they don't tend to take away everything that they need to be able to actually adapt it to what they do. Um, It's one thing to get the information. It's another thing to take it and actually use it in the real world. Something we're going to be uh, talking about today as well is the importance of online communities and how they've supported uh, software trainings during COVID, but also trying to connect the dots on how important they are to these software trainings regardless. So just sort of in general, have you found that community or tapping into community has always been a big part of delivering quality software trainings? Yes, no, why or why not? Or how have you seen that change? I have seen uh, the concept of community work very well and very poorly. Uh, I've seen it work very well at in-conference. You know, if someone attends a live conference, one of the biggest things about going to a conference is hanging out with the people who do the same job as you do and do it in slightly different ways. So that kind of interaction is absolutely invaluable. Online, people tend to behave differently than they do in person. So the downsides of community have always been uh, uh, the things that come with all online uh, venues that are not uh, unique or private or individual. If you're in a public space, whether it's LinkedIn or whether it's uh, um, uh, Facebook or you know any sort of uh, uh, social media environment, people tend to hide behind uh, uh, pseudonyms, they tend to bully, they tend to be negative, they tend to uh, 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 be judgmental, uh, and they give out a lot of incorrect information. Uh, One of the toughest things for training uh, or for support is that when someone seeks information online uh, and they're not going to the source, they're not going directly to the company that provides that information, if they simply, you know, and frequently that will happen when someone is looking for a free solution as opposed to a solution that they have to pay for, what they will do is get uh, the quality of what they pay for. They'll just throw out a question, uh, throw out a question to uh, whoever happens to have uh, some experience and say, hey, how do I do this? And someone will say, oh, you should do it like this. And I'm sure it's well-meaning in most cases. I'm sure it's very well intended, but it could be incredibly misleading and incredibly wrong and or incredibly dangerous. Um, I've had people who have been online who have said, oh, I work in this fashion and it may work perfectly well for them, but then for someone who's in a different state under different jurisdictions and with different rules uh, and different laws, um, it could be completely illegal to do the thing that someone else was advocating and they would have no knowledge of that and there would be no person to tell them that. So community uh, interaction with your colleagues, incredibly valuable when you can exchange the right kind of information with them. And the way that you know whether the information you're exchanging is the right information is you're talking about things that you uh, uh, are also vetting with an expert. So having both together in the same environment is critical. You absolutely must have um, an overseer or a moderator, someone who can be there with the rest of the community and guide that conversation so that uh, it 
you get the best of it and remove the worst of it. And, uh, you know, there have been a lot of different things with social media that I, I, I just don't care for, you know, advertising, fundraising, everybody gets distracted. And so it's not particularly good for a training environment. Um, but when you take a community, make it private, make it adless, make it uh, totally focused just on the mission of whatever it is that someone needs to learn. And you have that uh, combination of your peers uh, who actually know how things are supposed to work or who have ideas and or have used a particular function in a particular way that makes their jobs easier. When you hear it from a peer, it just makes, it's more meaningful than when you just hear it from an expert. An expert is theory. An expert is saying, oh, here's how things should work in an ideal world. And with your peers, you know how things work in the real world. And when you get both of those together, they combine and they make really effective training. We'll draw some intersections here in a little bit between community and some more specific context. But let's get into uh, sort of the unavoidable topic here, which is COVID and how the pandemic has impacted trainings uh, regardless of industry. Um, so let's get into that a little bit. How has COVID shifted the landscape in y'all's industry for end-user software training operations? What was sort of the initial hit? How did it impact your workflow? And what are some of the ways y'all adapted? Well, uh, in my industry, we have... Uh, two primary methods of providing training to our end users. And again, I'm speaking about customers as opposed to in-house employees. Um, our customers get training by, uh, uh, through, uh, we have an independent training agent program. So we have freelancers who provide training on a one-on-one -on -one basis uh, or in small groups or at uh, uh, conferences. Um, so when COVID hit, we were already providing a combination of in-person and remote training. Basically, all of the in-person obviously stopped. So since February of this year, there has been no in-person training done at all. Everything switched to remote training. So half of my staff who had not previously uh, uh, offered remote training suddenly had to get up and running with remote training and be able to provide that service. Uh, the customer base that we were training, their jobs had changed dramatically. So they were now providing the services uh, that they do remotely via Zoom or uh, some other web conferencing software. And so suddenly we had to not only offer training on our own products, but also on web conferencing applications so that people would know how to use those applications as well as our own software and how they would work together and whether they would work together, uh, just depending on what it is that they were trying to do. So we had to learn how were their jobs evolving as well as how were our own evolving. So that was uh, uh, rather dramatic. Um, all in-person conferences ended. So as that was a major uh, uh, source of where we would provide training uh, by being invited to come speak at conferences and provide uh, in-person uh, uh, large uh, workshops of our products, um, uh, that obviously was gone. So what we had to do was uh, uh, participate in virtual conferences and create our own uh, a series 
of webinars so that we could get to the people that would normally come to see us at conferences. Plus, since uh, nobody was uh, uh, working to begin with the first uh, six to eight weeks or so of COVID, uh, everyone was pretty much down and not working at all. Uh, so what we, uh, you know, they didn't really have the money to do any kind of education whatsoever. So we figured, you know, they're all sitting around doing nothing. This is a perfect time for them to be learning uh, uh, and getting information that they can then use as soon as they get back to work. So we provided free webinars uh, and basically got them into the mode of uh, understanding this is a viable means of learning for me, especially when it's recorded and I can review it. Uh, one of the things that I learned uh, was extremely helpful to the end user is that not only can you provide a webinar, uh, you don't just provide the recording. I also provide a, uh, a digest um, that is time-stamped, time-referenced, so that uh, they can take a look uh, and when they're going to play the recording, they also have um, uh, posted along with the recording uh, a list of everything that is being trained, uh, everything that we went through, and where it, that particular lesson or that particular segment appears in uh, the webinar so that they can fast forward to the part that they actually want to learn or they can uh, uh, just review just the little segment that they needed, not have to sit through the entire thing perhaps. Um, so it is, uh, you know, COVID really uh, knocked us for a loop to begin with. But uh, because I have been telecommuting for 30 years, my company moved me out to uh, uh, California. Uh, my company's based in Chicago, uh, or the Chicago area, and they moved me out to California back in uh, 1990. And so I've been telecommuting since then. I've been providing remote uh, services for a long, long time. So I already knew how remote learning differs from in-person learning. And fortunately, I had that expertise to share with all of my uh, uh, independent training agents, and I was able to help them combine that with colleague interaction. Um, uh, so they are able to communicate in a way which is safe, uh, but they're also able to um, uh, still fit the needs. Um, uh, and just uh, financially, I think the other thing to note is like I said, we started off free and got them used to learning in that environment. And now uh, we have shifted to a model where they understand that this is worth paying for. This is something that is genuinely valuable. And when you make it in a segment which is small enough and short enough that I can fit it in while I work, as opposed to having to take time off, I think it's going to change how we do conferences and how we do uh, uh, in-person training in the future. Future. I don't think it'll go away entirely because people do like to see each other. Uh, we are a very, um, uh, we're, we're very isolated as it is, even before COVID we were isolated, but now even more so. Uh, people will want to get together when it's safe to do so, but uh, it won't, won't necessarily just be for training. I think it's more uh, going to be social, and I think they're going to find that this method of uh, accessing online training um, and accessing it in a way that is still as personal as in-person training has been is going to uh, uh, make a huge difference to how everyone uh, uh, gets their training. So combining some of the stuff we've talked about so far, how has Stenograph meshed remote workflow needs and remote training needs as well as uh, online communities to shift your trainings and to develop uh, more robust trainings during COVID? 
so what we did, uh, my uh, uh, the president of our company, uh, Anir Duda, uh, who I believe has been on this podcast before, uh, Anir uh, introduced me to uh, a, a resource that he had discovered online called Mighty Networks, which was combining um, uh, online training uh, or online community uh, together. And basically it was more, it was a way to monetize an online community. And he said, take a look at this, see what they have to offer and see if there's some way that we can use it in our industry. I took a look at it and I immediately saw the possibilities. I saw, oh, wow. Well, what we could have is basically the, the equivalent of a private uh, moderated Facebook along with video training along with uh, uh, you know live webinars, uh, uh, recorded webinars. I could do Q&A sessions where, or office hours where people could come to me and ask their questions. I began to realize that a lot of the things that we had been giving away for free on Facebook by trying to answer questions and trying to uh, address misinformation, that we didn't have to do that because if we had our own private community where people could uh, uh, come and get their information from the source and uh, also still join with uh, their peers, that it would be ideal. Plus, uh, the whole idea would be that they wouldn't have to take time off. Um, now, one thing that did change, and that is that um, uh, I, I knew that it was going to be be difficult for us to offer continuing education credit for this. One of the reasons that training evolved the way that it did, and the reason that it was done, uh, you know, as stand-up, in-person, large conference, uh, uh, lengthy sessions, was for the needs of continuing education credits. Uh, people had to physically be in a room for a certain amount of time in order to earn their points, and uh, uh, that doesn't work as well online. Uh, especially when it costs you money to go ahead and apply for that continuing education credit, uh, whether it's done by the vendor or whether it's you know the provider of the training or whether it's done by the uh, individual who earns the training and has to submit uh, uh, documentation. Um, when it costs you, uh, and just in our industry, it's approximately $45 for uh, uh, every time you want to uh, apply for credit for something. Uh, whether that session was an hour or two hours or 10 hours, it doesn't matter. You just pay that fee. But it has to take place during the course of a single day. So most people only want to take very short segments. And if you had to pay 45 bucks every single time you took training to get your uh, 0.1 CEU, it just isn't terribly effective. It winds up being a, a cost of almost $450 extra per year. Now, when we did on uh, in-person sessions, that was far more cost effective because we would just pay the entire fee in advance. Uh, and it was, you know, there was one uh, set uh, uh, fee that we would pay to accommodate as many people as showed up to our training. So all we had to do was ensure that our training was uh, or our session was attractive enough to get enough people to spread the cost around uh, so that it cost the uh, person who was attending nothing more than the actual fee to attend. And they thought they were getting their CEUs for free. It was just all wrapped up together and it, you know, it was a way to do it cost effectively. Um, online, there's just no way to do that. You can't have a 10-hour online session and make it cost effective for someone to submit for points. So uh, we 
did uh, uh, some research. We did some surveys of our customers, of uh, reporters in general, and said, uh, hey, how important is this to you? You know, do you really need those CEUs? Because to do it online, not only do I have to, uh, um, you know, offer many, many hours of training, I also have to track and make sure that you are actually there, that you are actually online at those times. And I have to give you testing to make sure that you actually paid attention during the times that you were online. Uh, there are some software products that can track that automatically, but they're not exactly cheap and they're not exactly easy to use. So uh, uh, trying to to uh, uh, put all that together cost-effectively just wasn't going to happen. So I asked, how important is it? And I was amazed and delighted to discover that it wasn't quite as important as people said it was. Uh, uh, what they originally, um, uh, or the way I had originally thought that it was. Uh, we only had 80% of our users said, yeah, it's important to me if it's long enough, but if it's short, then I don't care. So since 20% uh, 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 was, excuse me, let me just uh, uh, rewind a little bit uh, and just re-say that. I had only 20% of my customers saying that they absolutely critically had to have those points or else they weren't going to take training. The other 80% said, no, it's not that important. I can get that in other venues. So uh, one once I uh, established that it wasn't that important, and among that 20% who said it was critical, only 4% of those uh, really thought it was critical if it was going to be uh, um, more than two or three hours of training. If it was going to be under an hour, they didn't care. So I had 96% of my users didn't care about the CEUs if I was doing the training in short chunks, which was better for them anyway. So once we took out the whole CEU component, uh, that made it really viable. So uh, I, I'm just delighted with the way that this is turning out because uh, with everyone working remotely, with everyone uh, learning remotely, but still able to uh, um, combine within a community uh, that we were able to create via this Mighty Networks platform, uh, everyone's getting exactly what they need. And uh, yeah, they still have some CEU needs, but they can get those met in other venues uh, or in other methods. Uh, uh, my training agent staff is still out there and still willing to do one-on-ones for many, many hours in a row if someone wants to uh, uh, earn CEUs. Uh, we have uh, a users group, and the users group offers uh, uh, webinars that also offer uh, CEU accreditation. Uh, so they can go ahead and get their documentation and apply for their CEUs through those methods and still learn software to do it. But there's a lot of other things that they can uh, uh, do as well and uh, uh, far more cost effectively than I could offer the kind of quality training that they really need. What is then some strategy or advice that you have for others out there looking to tap into online communities to support their uh, software trainings during COVID? Did you find that there was anything strategically that helped you uh, tap into existing communities or help cultivate and foster new online communities? Uh, and how would you, I guess, summarize that in an advice form? Well, uh, I'm kind of in a unique situation in that uh, my community is created by all of, you know, by having a customer base. We have uh, pretty much everyone who is a customer of mine 
needs the information that I've got. So we didn't really have to develop community and then uh, uh, market it. Uh, uh, you know, we didn't have to create the community to begin with. Um, anyone who is out there is is my customer. Uh, uh, you know, if they own my software, they need what I got. I know that uh, in other uh, uh, community learning situations that uh, that is a major concern is how do I build the community in the first place and uh, uh, Mighty Networks has fantastic online courses to teach people how to develop those communities and I'm using a lot of the same methods even though I don't have to uh, um, create the community but I'm using the same kind of techniques that they have uh, uh, taught others uh, uh, to help attract more users um, but no it's not it's not a huge thing for us. What about engaging your existing community? What's some strategy or tips you have for uh, making sure that, you know, obviously like you described, your community is already looking for and in need of these services. Uh, but have you found that there is a way to tailor the content to the community in a way that is uh, engaging and feels like it really reflects their needs authentically? Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that, uh, well, having 31 years of experience with these folks, I know what takes them the longest. Um, but uh, what I've done is uh, uh, basically I've put together put together a theme for each month of the uh, courses that I'm going to offer uh, or the, uh, uh, the specific webinars or the live Q&A sessions, what we'll be talking about. So like for our first month, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, for our first month, uh, we focused on one uh, set of features uh, in our editing module. And then for this second month, uh, I'm just starting my second month right now, and we're focusing on real-time translation and what ways you can be more accurate. And then next month, I'm going to focus on something uh, called automatic indexing, which enables people to uh, uh, generate the uh, uh, examination and exhibit indexes. Uh, it's something which is incredibly time-consuming. Uh, so having that experience tells me what their needs are, and so I can organize them in a fashion that uh, attracts users uh, and attracts them to understand, oh yeah, I need that shortcut, so I'd better get that service. However, uh, that's not enough in and of itself. What I also need to do to engage them is to get them to participate. I can't force uh, them to talk to each other. But what I can do is start the conversation, and the way that I start the conversation is through questions and polls and uh, uh, basically what I call the question of the week. So what I'll do is I'll throw up a poll or I'll throw up a question that says, how are you handling this particular issue? Or uh, of, of these three software features, what works best for this need? And letting people talk about that gets them to talk to each other. In fact, just yesterday, it was wonderful. Um, uh, I was uh, uh, monitoring the messages uh, that they had posted in the community and just seeing what was new. And uh, there was this fantastic conversation between um, uh, a reporter in Pittsburgh and another reporter in another part of Pennsylvania. Uh, but they both have the same basic needs. One is just absolutely expert at uh, uh, her uh, what we call standard pages, the forms that have to go with a uh, deposition transcript, the title page, the appearances, the uh, certificates, things like that. And so she is using features to make that as efficient as possible and she's able to get 
that particular task done in a few minutes. Whereas the other reporter is extremely good at editing on the fly from her writer during real time so that as she's writing um, uh, uh, and as things are translating, if something comes up wrong, she's able to fix it on the fly just by writing a slightly different stroke that uses a software technique that will go back and fix the issue. So they each had a missing set of skills. They both had strengths. They found each other, found that they're not that far apart uh, 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 physically. And it doesn't really matter now in the time of COVID, they're going to be uh, communicating online anyway. But eventually, I have a feeling that these two are going to be very close friends because the one report is sending her a copy of all of her forms that are uh, efficiently created and will explain to her how to use them. And the other one is uh, uh, answering her questions on uh, how she uses the on-the-fly editing, uh, you know, what uh, methods that she used and what specific items that she uses, uh, uh, different features that she uses to cause certain things to happen and to translate better. And we have created this incredible interaction um, that wouldn't have been possible if we weren't guiding the conversation, if we weren't asking them the questions, if we weren't talking about the topics that they most need. So, you know, it's just, this is still really just starting, but I can see how huge this could become. And then finally, do you have any advice for anyone out there uh, who is in a similar situation as you that is developing software training specifically for their product and for an existing client base, but is having to adapt some of those trainings to a COVID landscape. What would you recommend and why? Uh, the first thing I would recommend is uh, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, uh, take a look very closely at what you have done and what has worked and why has it worked and uh, go ahead and try to keep that as much as you can within your uh, online environment that you move to. The second thing I would suggest is uh, throw out what doesn't work and uh, take a look at the things that you thought were absolutely necessities and find out if they really are. Find out how they, important they are to your end users. Um, and finally, uh, as much personalization and customization as you can provide in an online environment is extremely helpful. Uh, basically, what I find is that uh, if you want uh, your company to succeed and you want their products to succeed, then the customers have to be very happy with them. They have to be um, comfortable. They have to be confident. They have to be productive. And the only way they're going to have those things is if they uh, uh, are uh, satisfied with the way the product works and their knowledge of that product. So the only way they're going to get that is through you. You have to provide that education that shows them, yes, you can do everything that you can do, that uh, you need to be able to do. Um, and I guess my final piece of advice is never say no. Uh, you don't have to say, no, you can't do that. Uh, there is a way to do it. It may not be there right now. There may be a workaround that you have to employ, but whatever it is that someone is trying to do, uh, if, they're, uh, if the answer would be no, find out what the question is, because maybe it's just that the question is not being asked in a way that you can answer yes. So see if you can change the question. When someone asks, how do I do X, uh, find out what the result is that they actually want and don't uh, buy into what they are saying is the only way to do it. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, which is just, you know, a general good uh, uh, rule for training, but especially now with COVID and with everyone being isolated, they need connection. 
they need to feel like they're a part of a group and and part of a community that understands what they're going through, not just in the isolation of COVID, not just in how their job is changing, but in uh, uh, learning and staying on top of things. So when you can uh, provide that little uh, personal touch that says, I'm listening and I hear what you have to say and I understand what your needs are and I have a solution that's going to help get you a little bit further down that path so that you are not only going to survive, you're going to thrive, you're going to prosper. I think that's critical. All right, Cindy Lynch, Training Program Manager for Stenograph, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and giving us your context on how Stenograph has adapted its software trainings under COVID and some advice for others who are in a similar situation. Uh, If folks want to find out a little bit more about Stenograph, its trainings, or uh, some of your solutions and place in the industry, where can they go online to learn more? They can come to stenograph.com. Everything that I've uh, uh, talked about is actually at stenograph.com forward slash ascend, A-S-C-E-N-D. Ascend training by Stenograph is uh, what we're calling our online uh, uh, learning technique. And I have a number of uh, 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 FAQs and uh, all sorts of information. And of course, you can always reach me via email as well. So I'm always delighted to uh, answer any questions that I can for anyone at clynch at stenograph.com. Sounds great. All right. Cindy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk about what I love. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of the Market Scale Technology Podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or going to our website, marketscale.com slash industries for a full catalog of industry-specific B2B content. And if you go to our website, at the top, you'll find a tab that says Podcast Network. If you click there, you'll find a full catalog of shows as well that are specific to different verticals, different contributors, etc. So all your content is there on marketscale.com slash industries. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to today's episode. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you next time.